0: The following message is from Kings Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at KingsCrossManchester.com. Um, some of you uh, may be aware of how I handle uh, stressful movies. Like, I do. You, have I mentioned this before? That I read I read the Wikipedia pages of stressful movies before I watch them, like if they're a thrill or anything suspenseful, anything that requires me to be anxious at all. Um, specifically, I uh, I love to do that with horror movies. I don't know if anybody here is like a horror movie fan. I'm not like a huge, like, I can't stand to watch through them, but the idea of horror movies is like super fascinating to me. Um, I, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, some of it is just like, they're just an interesting storyline, but then also they they expose a part of the human condition. Like, what are we afraid of? What are the things that drive us crazy? And that sit, that get under our skin. Um, And in that sort of observation of horror movies of the last 10, 20 years, I've noticed, uh, and this is being written about kind of more frequently by movie critics, that there are increasing number of horror movies that end with the bad guys winning. Um, Now, a part of that is certainly a, uh, like you can't have a franchise if the bad guy loses. You get a franchise if the bad guy wins because you can continue to do bad guy stuff and then you get more horror movies out of it. But I think some of it is also um, a sort of observation about our cultural place and some of our cultural psychology and how we think about our lives and the world around us. Um, I think at the end of the day, some of us are beginning to the culturally begin to see that bad stuff seems to win more frequently. The bad guys seem to continue to get the upper hand. There's a cynicism about the world around us that at the end of the day, decay and evil ultimately wins and ultimately gets the upper hand. Um, and I think that that is a certain aspect of our own discipleship and how we can think of our lives in following God. Like, we've, if you've been following Jesus for more than five minutes, um, there's a certain sense which you realize, like... Uh, I don't change as quickly as I'd like. I continue to make um, terrible, sometimes bad decisions. Even when I mean to make good decisions, I try to do my best, and then somehow I just can't seem to keep my life together, and the wheels keep coming off. And kind of like a horror movie, it can seem like the bad parts of me seem to always get the upper hand and win. And I seem to always kind of get off track. We can kind of think about our Christian discipleship just kind of like, at the end of the day, like, Why continue to try to change or follow Jesus or continue any of this if I'm just going to continue to feel this sense of perpetual failure or disappointment or uh, letting God down or something like that? I think that is that kind of mental space of why bother, that type of thing. That helps us kind of get into the framework of what's going on in this passage because... um, If you know anything about the family of Jacob's family, um, he has two wives who also bring into the family two more wives to have 12 sons. That's basically what this story is about. And if that does not shock you, um, then uh, I just want to remind you that it just goes very bad for Jacob. And that's not God's design for how we should be following him. So none of these pictures are necessarily in the chapter we are looking at this morning are uh, pictures of commendable people acting in commendable ways. Um, We're not walking away from this thinking like, hey, you know what, if you've got one spouse, why don't you try two? Like, that's not (laughs) not the payoff of this passage. Um, But I think the payoff of this passage is that in the midst of our imperfect discipleship, we have a God who remains the same, a God who remains for us, a God who continues to push towards and work with and amidst people who make imperfect decisions while following a faithful God. Um, So in the midst of all this, we're going to see kind of three ways in which, uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but three ways in which people are making imperfect decisions and their discipleship with God. The first one, we're going to, the shifting loyalties, the way in which we follow God, don't follow God indifference towards following God, then ultimately resentments or bitterness about following God and His plans for us. As I said, um, one of the things we've been doing lately is um, kind of on-the-spot engagement questions. So I'm going to do that as we work through this. So I'd like for you to just kind of put your thinking hat on as we work through this and help me kind of think through what exactly is going on with each of these people's motivations. Because I I hope you've picked up, as we've worked through Genesis, one of my favorite things about doing narratives, especially Genesis or the Gospels, is that I think the reason they're written the, in the way that they are is we're supposed to kind of try to get into the emotional space, the life circumstances of each of the characters involved, to understand exactly how God is behaving towards them. So I think that's what we're going to find here. We're going to see with Leia. We're going to pick up – I'm sorry, Leah. Bro, I've had too many Star Wars movies in my head. <laughs> Does anybody else do that? You read L-E-A-Y and you're like – Leia, the princess. Like, no, not that story. <laughs> so, uh, so if I say Leia, somebody just kind of like raise your hand. Like, uh, wrong storyline, Jacob. Uh, they, they're both a galaxy. That are a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Just this story is our galaxy, not that galaxy. Anyhow, sorry. Leia, we're gonna pick up here. I want to read some sections out of chapter twenty-nine into uh, 30 on Leah, and we're going to see in Leah's kind of life experience, in our shifting loyalties, God sees it. So we're going to see that here in the first verse, and we're going to kind of see how Leah responds to that through her story. So pick up here, chapter 29, verse 31, where David covered some of this for us last week. When the Lord saw, again, this is, uh, the title or the heading for our section, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore she called his name Levi. And she conceived again, and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. All right, so we're going to skip down to verse 9, because we're kind of skipping around this passage a little bit. We're going to read the, the, the major chunk in chapter 30. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. And she called his name Gad. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for, uh, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. And Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you for my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I I gave my servant to my husband. She called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Jacob said, God has endowed me with a great endowment. Now my son will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Okay, what a crazy passage, right? I mean, this is bizarro all over the place. And I don't think that we're supposed to walk away and try to rationalize like, oh, this is okay behavior. Like we're supposed to engage with this and be like, you guys all need a therapist, and your therapist probably needs a therapist because you guys have got some serious family counseling. You guys all need going on. What I want to do, amidst all of that, is I want to go to the next slide, and I just want to throw up here, and I want to ask, what do you guys see as we're looking the way Leah names all of her sons? Right? We have her starting out with right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you kind of heard this kind of going in. Her first name, the, the names of her sons: Reuben, behold a son, Simeon. God hears, and there's all these qualifications of God hears because now I will have fill in the blank. So when you guys look at this, I'm just going to open this. What, what do you guys see as kind of a pattern. You'll notice that the first, if you just kind of go back to the passage, just the passage of the Scripture, right? The way she starts naming because, for example, with Reuben. Reuben's name, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love you, right? So behold, a son, right? This is like, behold, like I finally had a son. But you'll notice the qualification. For now, my husband will love me. Like, that's behind the motivation for her naming her son. And then the third one, right? She conceived a son again. Behold, Lord has heard that I am hated, and he has given me a son also, right? There's still a reference point to her husband. And then you see in the third one, right? She conceived and bore a son again. This time, my husband will be attached to me. Right? Now, I've had a, a third son. I mean, in the ancient world, I mean, you're talking about, like, this is, like, major kudos. Third son. Now my husband will love me. And then there's something that happens. Again, this is the part of the story where I just invite you to speculate. It doesn't fill in any of the details. But you see this kind of this shift of faith has happened for Leah. Right? Verse 35 of 29. This time, I will praise the Lord, period. Judah. All right? Let God be praised. That's all it says. So she's this, almost like this high point of faith for her. And then something happens again in her life. You know, Rachel's gone and kind of done her swindling, as we'll see later. And then she starts talking about, like Melanie was pointing out, like now she's talking about luck and By the way, Asher being happy, you notice the reference point, verse 13 of chapter 30. Happy am I, for women have called me happy. Right? It's not happy because God's seen her. It's happy because, look, in comparison to other people. I now have six sons. Like, her happiness is not in reference to God. So she's almost like slumped. If if, if you think like a 50-yard line is like Reuben. Like, she's gotten to the goal line of faith with with Judah, and then she's, like, been pushed back to the opposite side of the field with Asher. Like, now she's, like, talking about luck and other people's perspectives on her. And then, I mean, it's almost like she's playing an entirely different game when you get to and Zebulun. She's like, I've hired my husband, and it's just crazy. So the reason I point out all that stuff is you see this kind of, like, shifting tides of Leah's faith. She moves towards God, and she moves, you might say, away from God. What exactly are God's thoughts in the midst of all of this? I want to put up here the next slide here. 29 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hidden, he opened her womb, but Rachel was bare. Let me go down to verse 17 of 30. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore a son. And bore Jacob a fifth son. It, again, we don't get a lot of insight in this passage into God's like internal thinking, but you don't get the sense in the midst of like this, like this is like a Jerry Springer show of family dynamics. And in the midst of all of that, all we have is a gracious picture of God being presented as, in the midst of your shifting. Wo- I mean, if Leah is saying, "I'm going to name my fourth son," God be praised. And then my next son, I'm going to call him lucky. But, you know, there's some shifting loyalties going on for her. And God sees in the midst of all of that, he looks into her heart. He sees all of her life dynamics. He sees what's going on. And then he continues to hear and listen and see her. It's almost as though God graciously assesses her. It's almost as though... God focuses not so much on the craziness of her life, but he sees somehow into, in what the passage kind of keeps veil from us, but some sort of inner faith of hers that's still there in one way or the other. I'm not exactly sure where it is, because honestly, like, if, if she was a part of our church, I'd be kind of like, time out, Leah, can we, like, have some serious conversations here about where you're at with Jesus And yet God seems to be more proactively gracious towards her than maybe we would be. See, the focus of our faith can be all over the map. One season, God's in the seat. Next season, we're just kind of like whatever. In the midst of all of that, God can pick out the needle of faith in the midst of the haystack of chaos in our lives. It's not to say that we don't need to work on that. It's not to to say that we don't need to address and try to work through why are we making these decisions or why are we struggling or all those things. But at the ground baseline of what faith means is God's posture of graciousness towards us. You don't get the sense that God's begrudgingly kind of tolerating Leah in the story. We can often have this sense in our faith, in our walk with God, I haven't done enough for God to listen to me. I haven't really obeyed correctly for God to hear my prayers. I haven't really done the right things. I haven't done the, the things that I know that I should be doing. And yet, the very nature of this book's picture of who God is, is that he and his character is the baseline of our faith, not our conduct, not what we do. Right? God is oriented towards you, not under whether you've like obeyed perfectly. He's oriented towards you based on the type of God that he is. He graciously wants imperfect people like Leah to be in his family. So we're going to move on because there's still a lot of some craziness to kind of assess in this story. They haven't quite figured out everything going on. So we've looked at Leah. I want to pick up here. I want to go to chapter, uh, chapter 2. I'm sorry, verse 2 of chapter 30. We're going to verse verse two, first two verses. We're gonna look at Jacob and then we'll end by looking at Rachel. In Jacob, again, this is a bit weird because my name is Jacob and this character's name is Jacob, and we're just gonna to have to make the distinction. They're talking about him and not me, though I may act like this sometimes. In our indifference, God leads us. When Rachel saw that she that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She sent to Jacob. Give me children or I shall die And here in the midst of this entire chapter or the entire section that we're looking at, this is Jacob's only line. Then Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, "Am I in the place of God who has withheld you, withheld, withheld from you the fruit of the womb. I want to kind of drill in a little bit of like Jacob's experience up to this point and kind of the emotional space of what he would have been thinking about, right? You have to remember, This story up to this point is based on a lot of couples having trouble getting pregnant, right? Famously, Abraham and Sarah, they, like, in major proportions, totally, um, not only were not able to have children, but totally screwed up by having, you know, the whole thing with uh, Abraham and Hagar and all of that stuff. Just, it's a a mess all over the place. But... Famously, they get pregnant when they're, like, in their late 90s, or their 90s. Sarah sure would have been 89. Have a child. That child then has trouble getting pregnant with his wife. And then, chapter 25, it says that Isaac prays, and then Rebecca has a child. Actually, she has not one child, but two twins. And Jacob is this, the younger of those two. So now you have a family history of Providentially, God providing miracle babies, you might call them, right? Miracle children, late in life, out of nowhere. And Jacob is the second, the younger brother of that situation. And he's not only the second brother, but he's the second brother who swindled his older brother out of the family inheritance, lied to his dad, who was blind, took advantage of his father's uh, graciousness to try to bless the, the older son to give him a blessing, lied to his dad, had his older brother want to kill him. Um, like a good boy, went out of town to go get married to the family's extended family, find a wife over there, got swindled by his cousin, meets God along the way, and now we find him here. Jacob has had a lot of experience and a lot of kind of family lore about God's providence caring for them. And yet, when I read this passage, this does not look like the statement of faith from Jacob. It says, Jacob's anger was kindled against, against Rachel and said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? This sounds to me, and you can disagree with me, but this sounds to me like Jacob is saying a statement of faith. Is this, you know, this is a true thing about God, but he does not believe it or, or own it in any sort of meaningful way. In a certain sense, you get that picture also from the sense that this is Jacob's only line in this whole story. And it's all, amidst all of this stuff where he's getting hired by one of his wives and all that stuff. This is his only line, right? I'm not like, I'm not gonna like bang in on like husband leadership or anything like that, but there's a certain sense in which he should have been doing some type of leading, providing, caring for, and this is his only only line in the story. To vent his anger, you almost might say resentment about this truth about God, in the situ- in a situation that's completely out of his control, that he's doing nothing to address. In a similar way, I'm thinking of like personal illustrations of how does this kind of play out in some of our lives, like just uh, this assumed values versus own values. So, for example, uh, some of you maybe were like, my, my dad's military, my whole family's military, like my great grandparents fought in World War II. Um, In basically every American war in the 20th century, my family's been involved. We're all military, super patriotic, all that stuff. So, my wife and I, we bought our first house in Philly before we moved here. Bought the house, my parents came to visit, and when I first, along the way of that visit, my mom asked, she was, Where's your American flag? Like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, don't you? You should have an American flag out in front of your house. I'm like, mom, I, I bought American property. I pay American taxes. Like, isn't that like sufficient? But for them, all right, and that's not a dig on my mom. It's just kind of like, for them, the value of being like committed members of the of the country, being patriotic, was expressing that and having like we have an American flag in front of our house. And once she said it, I'm like. Well, yeah, I look back and in every house we lived in, we'd always had an American flag out front. Because that was a value for them and how they expressed their loyalty to the country or whatever. And uh, in a certain sense, I disappointed that because it did not transfer to me. Like, I did not own that value. That's similar to what's going on here. Jacob has not, he's come to God, he's, he's trusted in God, and yet he's not sort of begun to take in great-granddad or granddad Abraham's faith and own it for himself in a way that informs how he thinks about his life and shapes the way he cares for people around him, right? That's kind of what we're driving at here. So in the midst of all of that, you still find that God is pursuing Jacob. We're going to see that in chapter 32, where we will be next week. God continues to care for them. And I guess the question is, like, In the midst of Jacob's failure, did you notice what's missing from this entire passage? Nobody in this passage is praying. At no point is Jacob praying at all. At no point does it seem that, I mean, it says that that children are named after prayer in a certain sense, God has heard me or whatever, but Jacob's not praying, none of the characters are praying, they're not oriented towards God in any sort of defining, meaningful sense, except in these occasional moments of faith. And yet, in the midst of all of that, God is not offended, put off, stepping back from leaning in to lead and care for their needs, right? Everybody in this story has messed up priorities, and whether they're not leading themselves correctly or they're not being led correctly, at the end of the day, God is the one leading them and caring for them. Ultimately, I know each of us can have disappointing experiences of either how we lead ourselves in our faith with God or how those around us lead us in our faith with Jesus. And we can kind of be like, man, we missed out on the best of what God has for us. The problem is that actually God is in the midst of each of those disappointing realities leading us, caring for us, providing for us, even in the midst of our disappointments, leading us to know him on this winding path of discipleship. All I'm trying to say is that even in the midst of imperfect leadership, whether that's ourselves or others around us, or me as a leader, God seems to continue to care, to provide for imperfect people. Through imperfect people, despite imperfect people. All right. You guys tracking? We're cool? We're going to pick up here with Rachel. And we're going... To end uh, with her story. All right, let me read for us. Uh, what do I put up here? So, for chapter chapter thirty, verse three to eight, and then we're going to drop down to verse twenty to twenty-four. Now, picking up where we left off after Jacob yelled at Rachel, then he said, and then she said, "Here is my servant Bilhah, go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf." that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Neftali. I, I just want to say, I just think, I mean, we all have our own naming philosophies for children. But if your naming philosophy for your children is um, animosity towards your, you know, your brothers or sisters, like you need to see a therapist. Like, that's crazy. I just think it's crazy. Like, I did not name my children in like, haha, my brother Eric. Like, it just, like it's just crazy to me. Like, all right, sorry. I, I'll keep um, focusing in here. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. I want to ask a question here, and I want you guys to kind of think with me about this. Verse 23, she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. What reproach? does she think God has removed from her? Probably like not having kids? Is that kind of where our minds go? So here's the crazy thing about that. In the ancient world, so she's had two kids by this, um, by this servant, right? So in the ancient world, they would have had a practice where, uh, they, you know, if a woman was barren and she had her servant, a uh, her husband, basically make her an extra wife, um, and she had a child in the ancient world that would have had this very distinct practice of putting that child on the knee of the queen mom, I don't know, the maid wife. And there would have been a, a ceremony where she would have put the child on her knee and received that child as her own child. Like that would have, everybody would have recognized basically this is a legal adoption, this is my child. So now she's got two that she's now held out as like, these are my like official children. So she has two official children by this second wife, right? And yet here she is saying, I have this reproach that God has removed from me for a second child, or for for her own children. So in my mind when I read this, we okay? In my mind when I read this, I think the reproach that Rachel's got in her head going on is an internal narrative of self-inflicted shame that she's dealing with, right? There's a certain sense in which everybody would, she would look around and say, everybody knows I've got these two kids that I've had by the second wife, but really, I've got my own internal issues that I'm dealing with that I have not resolved that are really all in her own head. She, she, in a certain sense, feels that she there's a self-inflicted shame that she's dealing with that's, that's not grounded in anything other than her own internal narrative, which... I think when we begin to kind of put it that way, this internal narrative in her own head, we kind of begin to relate to Rachel, right? There's no objective reason for her to be considered a uh, shame, right? There's nothing to, like there's nothing that, like that's gone on, like other than that she hasn't had her own biological children, but she still has she's still an official mom in the story. The reality is, I think God sees this internal need of hers and responds with care and grace towards her. That even this internal narrative of I'm less than, I'm not qualified for, I'm, I'm less than the other people around me, God still sees that and cares about it. God still responds to it with, with care and grace. right? God sees this internal dynamic of hers and says, I still care, even though I could give you children in any other way, I want to provide and care for you personally. God remembers his care for her. God, or Rachel was right to see in her inner turmoil that God cared about her. Right? I I don't know if you have these internal thoughts, but like, basically, this internal narrative type thing is like, if you were to start voicing what you're thinking about yourself, other people might... You might think that it's like, well, it's ridiculous to talk about this with other people because, like, I just know that I'm being silly or I know that I'm just kind of being hard on myself or blah, blah, blah. And yet it's still very true and real for yourself. So uh, what I want to do is I want to point us towards this situation at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark and help us kind of think through this internal – how God particularly cares about these internal narratives – that kind of get us off track with our discipleship. In the beginning of Mark, we have uh, at the very end of the chapter, we have this story, can we throw it up here? In Mark chapter one, we have this situation at the very beginning of Jesus', story, Jesus ministry. A leper came to him and implored him, kneeling down to him and said, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And then it goes on to talk about how Jesus sternly sent him away. Um, and the man did the exact opposite of what Jesus said. Standard story. Jesus heals somebody. They go away and tell everybody about it where Jesus was kind of like, keep it quiet. The important part of the story here is that in the ancient world, a leper would have been seen as other, untouchable, don't get around us, you need to be over there. And if you touch anybody, according to the Mosaic law, that if you touch a leper, you would have been considered unclean yourself. And so Jesus, in the story, the leper himself comes to Jesus and says, I know that you can make me clean by just the power of your word. And yet Jesus' response to him, is to rehumanize, to honor the humanity of this man, and actually speak to this inner narrative of complete ostracization, this negative inner narrative, this complete sense of internal shame that this man had, and reaches his hand out and touches it. You see, in the actions of Jesus, we are finding physical manifestation of what we're seeing here in Genesis where God sees these internal dynamics of our own life. These internal narratives of self-shame, negative thoughts, the sort of like these, what what Rachel calls her own reproach, right? That sort of internal dialogue. And God responds to them with personal care in the situation of the leper and Jesus touching this man who had probably not been touched for 20 years or more. In restoring to him not only his humanity, but his own dignity. You see, in the life of Rachel, what we find ultimately is that our bitterness about our internal narrative, whatever those can be, they can be actually rooted in real things that really are like valid to be bitter about. But ultimately, those things can ultimately divert us and swerve us away from experiencing and seeing the hand of God outreach to us. That can happen in multiple ways. We're not not delving into those this morning. The reality is that Rachel is a picture of somebody who, even in the midst of her own bitterness, her own sense of internal shame and this negative storyline tied in her own head, God still responds to her with care and attention. God still sees that story. And while not saying um, your internal narrative about yourself is real or true, I still care about you. And that's God's response to Rachel in this story, right? The the, the payoff of this is not to say, like, if you pray right, then God's going to give you whatever you want. Like, that's not not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is Rachel's self-assessment is way askew. And what we're finding here is when it says that God remembered, what that's referring to is the covenant with Abraham earlier in the story. In that covenant, if you remember, God makes, God makes a promise to Abraham, and in the ancient world, they would have both, like, been equal partners in that. But God basically puts his hand up and says, Abraham, I'm going to take on the promises of blessing and cursing in myself. So that in the midst of each of these people's failures in following God, God takes on the pain of their, of their faithlessness himself. So that he can continue to push towards them with care and provision and grace. That is... Ultimately, the payoff of this story is that we see in God's character and his orientation towards them that our imperfect discipleship does not separate us from God's heart for us. So let's pray. God, as we have looked at this story and considered your care for us, I ask that you would help us to experience your faithfulness towards us and to know your goodness in your heart in midst of our own, the ways in which we, each of us are imperfect disciples. May you would help us to see this because of who Jesus is. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure